Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. For my co-host, Matt Robeson, here on WKXL AM and FM, we are podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. And if you're listening to this on podcast, please subscribe, like us, share all about it on your social media. Well, we've all been Focused on the news out of Afghanistan in recent weeks, the story there needs almost no introduction. Uh, Events are moving very fast, and you may hear things on today's program that are already out of date by the time we get to air. We're recording this on Friday, the 27th of August for broadcast on Monday, uh, the 30th. But we'll do our best to make sure that everything we talk about today is important. Uh, We wanted to talk about the situation, how we got here, where we're going in the future. And there is absolutely no one better to help us understand all of this than Sean Carberry. Sean is an award-winning writer, editor, foreign policy, national security expert with more than 20 years of experience in government and journalism. From 2018 through February of 2021, Uh, Sean Carberry served in the Department of Defense Office of Inspector General as managing editor of the lead Inspector General quarterly reports to Congress on overseas contingency operations, which included both public and classified reports on operations in Afghanistan. Uh, From June 2012 through December 2014, he was NPR's Kabul correspondent. He covered the ongoing war the 2014 Afghan presidential election, and daily life in the country until NPR closed the Kabul Bureau in December 2014. So folks, we're going to be talking with somebody who lived there, who covered it, who's written about it, who's analyzed it. Sean Carberry, uh, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks. Great to be with you guys. So you were as close to this situation in recent years as, as certainly anyone we know. Um, to what degree does President Biden bear the blame for the violent, messy, tragic situation we have on our hands? Well, he, he bears the blame for what's gone on since he's, he's been in power, short and simple. And the conduct of this withdrawal is on him. Um, President Trump, former President Trump, gets the assist in that he signed a deal with the Taliban in February of 2020 that set all of this in motion. And that deal was very favorable to the Taliban and put very little burden on them to achieve the U.S. commitment under that agreement, which was a complete military withdrawal from Afghanistan which under that agreement in theory should have been completed by May 1st. So that, that agreement basically obligated the Taliban to a couple of minimal things. You know, first and foremost, don't attack U.S. forces anymore. They met that. Uh, second was to enter negotiations with the Afghan government towards a peace deal. They did that. But that was an extremely low bar. Just starting talks, there were no benchmarks or milestones or obligations about what had to be achieved in those talks. And then the other major component of it was that they had to ensure that al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups don't use Afghanistan as a base to threaten the security of the United States and its allies. So that deal set everything in motion. There was 
some minimal conditionality in that deal, that if the U.S. determined the Taliban was not meeting its counterterrorism obligations, then it could delay the withdrawal that it had agreed to under that deal. And that's when we spoke months ago after President Biden uh, made his decision to go forward with the withdrawal, I raised the concern then that he was ignoring the conditionality and that he was saying he was getting out and he had a timeline for getting out and that was it. There was nothing that was gonna, gonna change that. There was nothing essentially that the Taliban could do that would alter his calculus to get out. And that I felt at that time was, was not the right way to approach it and that he had to ensure that the Taliban was at least meeting its minimal conditions under the agreement. Um, but it was clear, I think, to, you know, to many of us from the time that President Biden was campaigning until uh, he came into office and through all this, he had withdrawal blinders on from from the get go and he was going to get out. And it just seemed that nothing was was going to get in the way of that, whether it was, um, you know, people obviously encouraging him to scrap the deal that uh, the Trump administration had made. To modify it, um, you know, basically none of that seemed to, to stick, and uh, he decided he was getting out. And so that decision and the conduct of it is entirely on him. And frankly, as much as I was an advocate for winding things down and getting out of Afghanistan, because to me it was inevitable that the Taliban was going to come back one way or another, uh, the goal was to manage it in a way that it was the least destructive way possible and involved the, the least loss of life and, and other harm. Uh, but this withdrawal has, has just been, you know, chaotic. Um, obviously, it's turned deadly. Uh, it's, it's just been extremely poorly managed across the board. And while the president has said chaos was inevitable and there was sort of no alternative, I, I don't think anyone who you know, knows the situation, buys that. Uh, there could have been a number of things done to manage this in a better way, get people out, and and avoid this uh, this chaos. Well, you anticipated my exact next question, which is the pushback has been that there was never a realistic version of this that was likely to be significantly less violent and messy. And one of the cautions that I and other commentators have been applying is don't listen to the armchair analysts safely embedded in recording studios in the United States with very little knowledge of the situation who offer glib shouldas. We should have done X, we should have done Y. You're one of the few people in America who does not fit into that category. You are one of the most expert analysts. You have been close to classified information extremely recently. And so you know some of the considerations, you know some of the contingency planning so let me ask you the question, is there, was there a realistic version of this, perhaps with a different timeline, a different sequence of getting ourselves and our material out? Was there a different realistic version of this that would have been significantly less violent and messy? So I, I do think so. And I think a few things that that could have been done differently and some opportunities that were there. Obviously, there was a change of administration in the United States. President Biden could have approached the Taliban and said, I will honor this agreement in principle in terms of the withdrawal. However, 
the timelines and some of the, the internal aspects of it, we need to shift. Uh, one of the things that would have been smart and a number of people argued for this is to delay it until the fall of this year so that U.S. forces and international forces were still in Afghanistan through the traditional summer fighting season. Uh, to try to keep things tamped down a bit and to try to manage uh, a little bit more of, of the violence, support Afghan forces, and prevent the, uh, you know, the rapid takeover by, by the Taliban. Um, also, that would have allowed for more time to put pressure on the Taliban and the Afghan government to, to negotiate. Would that have made a significant difference? You know, obviously, we, there's no way to tell. We, we don't know. We won't know. But the U.S. did have some leverage still, even though much of it had been surrendered through the agreement. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, thousands of Taliban prisoners had been released uh, as, as part of the agreement um, and just the, the general message it delivered to the Afghan government and the Afghan military from February of 2020 when it said the U.S. is getting out. And that certainly led to a lot of what we've seen over the last month or two where Afghan forces who had been fighting to the death for years, uh, you know, not to diminish the, the sacrifices that they've made over the years, some 60,000 uh, fatalities among Afghan security forces. But once the sense was that the international support was leaving, um, that did change their calculus, change their morale. And you saw in a lot of cases where they negotiated surrenders with the Taliban rather than fight uh, because it, it just seemed that that's where everything was headed. Why put my life on the line for an inevitable outcome? So, you know, a lot of what has happened was, was set in motion. But I do think in terms of where troops were withdrawn from, in what order, for example, keeping Bagram Air Base open until the last minute uh, would have provided some other options for getting people out. Certainly getting people out sooner, and this, this is you know, one of the things that's been discussed and will continue to be discussed for some time, the, the SIV, the Special Immigrant Visa Program, has been flawed in its administration from the outset you know, more, than, more than 10 years ago. And it's been slow, it's been cumbersome, and the people who were promised visas have not been getting them. And so a lot of these people could have and should have been out years ago. And this has all been compressed now into this uh, accelerated exit. And so that's one area where uh, things could have been fixed, could have been dealt with. President Biden has sort of blamed the you know, former or president in exile, Ashraf Ghani, for that saying that Ghani told him not to pull people out because that would be a, you know, a sign of government collapse. It would diminish confidence. And President Biden said he honored that. that that's another one where, uh, you know, you've got to tell Ashraf Ghani, say, hey, look, you know, sorry, but we're getting the people out. We're going to do it as safely and responsibly as possible. And if that means starting it, you know, six months ago, then, then that's what you do. So, Certainly that aspect could have been managed very differently. So you don't have this crush of people now around the airport in an extremely vulnerable situation. And as we've seen, victim of, of an attack, um, that, that could have been 
substantially mitigated through through better management of this process. But I'm still hung up on December 2001, and that's where yeah. that's where it all could have gone well. And you know, the guy Mullah Baradar, who's likely to be the ruler of Afghanistan in December of 2001, was ready to negotiate, you know, some type of peace political deal, and preempt almost all of this, if not all of it. Uh, and that road not taken lands us here. So, Sean, I, I, I want to pick up on something you said very early on today. Um, I, I have not read the agreement um, uh, and, and can't speak to it in detail. But one of the things you talked about was that there was some conditionality built into the agreement. And one of the, the areas of condi- conditionality was that the Taliban would uh, would stand up against terrorist activities. Does the terrorist attack by ISIS-K that has just happened um, call up that condition? Is that, is, is that uh, activity uh, of, a, of the kind in nature where the president could now say, look, you said, that you were going to be able to protect us while we uh, completed our operations and withdrew. Uh, you didn't, Taliban, um, even though we're working together, you know, at the airport on security, you didn't prevent this ISIS-K attack. This is exactly what we were talking about. It's going to take us a little bit longer. And yeah, there's some other things we're going to do before we complete. We're not going to stick to this deadline. So in theory, yes. I mean, that that could be used as an example. I think there have been many cases, though, prior to this, and certainly intelligence, even, you know, unclassified public reporting for, for months, reporting that my former office did, uh, has indicated that there's still ongoing ties between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And so it calls into question whether or not the Taliban has ever been in compliance with the counterterrorism aspects of the agreement. Um, so there's always been an opportunity to exercise that conditionality. Now, ISIS-K has, has been a different dynamic because the Taliban and ISIS-K have been adversaries ever since ISIS-K emerged in late 2014, early 2015. Um, so there is a case where the U.S. and Taliban do have common cause against ISIS-K and at least some hope that the Taliban will be able to keep ISIS-K under control to some degree. Now, you know, this, this attack that, that happened, um, not at all a surprise given the, the nature of things and just in, in the area where it happened uh, without you know, spending too much time on it, but it was it, that gate, that entrance to the base in, in Kabul is a long stretch of road with blast wall on each side that goes to the security checkpoints that ultimately go into the base. So you had people funneled into a corral. Um, and, you know, it's, it's frankly surprising that there hadn't been more of this happening already. Uh, it's, it's a you know, vulnerable area. As long as one person's able to walk in with a vest, uh, you know, they can carry out something like this. Um, but, you know, to, to get, to sort of the heart of your your question, Paul, in terms of sort of the deadline and ex, and and calling in this this conditionality, I mean, certainly, I would argue that the United States should be telling the Taliban, that, look, the 31st has been a goal. It's it's a target that they're shooting for, but 
um, because of this attack and because of other concerns, it might not be able to get everyone out at that point. And certainly the United States should get everyone out that it has made promises to get out uh, and should, should hold the Taliban at bay and say, look, you're getting what you want, right? The U.S. forces are going to be out of here. If it takes another week, suck it up and, and deal with it. Um, but the U.S., you know, to, to adhere to that deadline, if there's still, you know, 10,000 SIV applicants standing around Kabul waiting to get out uh, would, would just be, you know, an absolute moral failure on top of many that have happened so far. No one has a crystal ball, either now or in the past. It was very hard to tell how this would go. But one of the major criticisms of the Biden administration has been, where was your contingency planning for bad and worst case scenarios? Now, what's happened in recent weeks is what typically happens, especially in Washington, when bad things happen. Every entity in the federal government has found a way through leaks or former personnel writing op-eds or what have you to say it's essentially a CYA exercise. It wasn't us. We foresaw this. We did our part. So there have been op-eds and Intel-focused publications where it's like, hey, you know, the intelligence, we said this. It's come to light that there was a cable within the State Department with all of the U.S. Embassy personnel saying back in July, hey, guys, the, the Taliban is going to take over within days. We're talking not, not months, not years, days. So you have to be ready for that. And apparently the Secretary of State saw it. So my question, and this is a deep one, and I'm going to warn you for radio purposes that we're going to take a break in two minutes. And that's okay. If I rudely cut in on you, I'm just going to pick the thread right back up on the other side mm-hmm. of this break. But this is, this is really, to me, a critical question. You were situated, you had a perch within this apparatus. How much a worst case scenario contingency foresight did we have? And was there indeed a failure to prepare for those worst case scenario contingencies? We know that it was popular in the previous administration to throw the intelligence community under the bus. And from my perspective and from intelligence products that, that I was able to consume in my interactions uh, with agencies, particularly Defense Intelligence Agency was a major source of the reporting uh, that I, I managed at the Inspector General's office. I have pretty high confidence in the intelligence community and what they put together and how they present it. Um, you know, people who aren't necessarily familiar, the intelligence community almost never says this will happen or this won't happen. It is, this is likely, and this is highly likely, or we have a high degree of confidence that X, Y, Z could happen. So it's, everything is presented as a degree of possibility. And then the consumer of that product looks at it and says, okay, there's a high possibility this could happen, medium that this could happen, low that that could happen. I need to plan based on that. And so I I believe that the people who were in charge of planning this had information necessary to be able to look at the contingencies, 
and the likelihood of various scenarios. So I, I, I think through, through their analysis and the way they would look at things and say, okay, what is the probability of a complete collapse of Afghan security forces? Uh, what's the probability of uh, you know, other factors, other, other things coming to play? So I think a lot of that analysis was done. It was presented to decision makers. I will say from my perspective last year when I was still at the, the Inspector General's office and after the Taliban deal was, was announced, my office as part of our quarterly reporting started asking the Defense Department, okay, how are you going to implement this, this agreement and this ultimate withdrawal that was a withdrawal of all you know, troops military contractors and uh, Defense Department civilians. So basically all of the military apparatus, uh, because there was a big concern about the fact that there were a lot of contracts for the Afghan forces for maintenance and training of their ground and, and air assets. Those contracts were scoped to run in some cases 2022, 2023, uh, and, into 2024. So we were asking, okay, how are you gonna wind down these contracts? How are you gonna transition these things? How are you gonna provide support to the ANDSF from outside? And uh, the way I will phrase it um, is that the sense that I had was a lot of people in the Pentagon were looking for a way around the full execution of the agreement. Uh, I think there was a hope that there would be either a renegotiation, a side deal, something that would allow for some ongoing presence or, or support to the Afghan security forces. Bottom line is, I, I think that for a period of time after the agreement was, was executed, there were officials who didn't fully take it seriously that it was going to happen. And I think some of that comes from the fact that for so long, there had been people wanting to get out of Afghanistan and arguing that, you know, we, we went through this in, in 2014 when I was there. Uh, there was the whole debate about whether or not troops would stay beyond 2014 when the original Operation Enduring Freedom ended. And it wasn't until the messy presidential election in 2014 was resolved that President Ashraf Ghani in September of 2014 signed the agreement with the U.S. to keep troops there after 2014. So there have been a number of moments where there was a belief that withdrawal was was likely or people were pushing for it or planning for it but then there's always the sense that well it's never really going to happen um it, it just you know after 20 years you think okay what what's it going to take for it to actually happen so uh, i i think there was some reluctance to to believe that a full military withdrawal was going to happen especially because a lot of people in the Defense Department and National Security Council did not support the deal that President Trump had made. So, you know, there was a lot of internal tension in, in the government, a lot of concern that that deal was surrendering U.S. counterterrorism pressure and capability in Afghanistan and was going to lead to a resurgence of the Taliban, a Taliban takeover, and then terrorists coming back. Now, people are 
currently prognosticating that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, could happen. We don't know. We're still very much on the front end of a lot of the dynamics that are going to ripple out from things. Um, but I, I do think that there was some underlying hope that there would be some way to keep a small presence there, keep some contractors to help the Afghan security forces, and that that, that would uh, persist. So I, I don't know, you know, when it sort of became really clear to everyone that all efforts to forestall the withdrawal or or renegotiate the agreement were done and it was really happening. I mean, certainly in April, obviously, when President Biden made the announcement, that shut off all debate at that point. But there were still public statements, even in May, from the commander of CENTCOM, General Frank McKenzie, stating that he was still in the process of putting together his recommendations to the Secretary of Defense on some of the matters of withdrawal and some of the over-the-horizon counterterrorism uh, prospects and support to the NDSF. So it was clear, even after this was announced, that this was happening, that there was still a lot of scrambling to plan the execution of it. Uh, and again, that, that's from public comments made by the people executing this thing, that they were still planning and chewing on things in May and June when this thing was supposed to be done, you know, at one point they were trying to get it all done by the end of July uh, and then bumped it out. Obviously, September 11th is the hard symbolic deadline for, for all of this. Um, but, you know, to the point that you know, I, I think there are serious questions about the, the level of planning that was going on. Um, and, you know, President Biden's explanation that, well, it, it was going to be chaotic no matter what, just you know, it doesn't hold water, especially for those of us who've seen military withdrawals before. I mean, I was in Iraq in December of 2011 covering that withdrawal. That was done efficiently, smoothly, safely. Now, there were still a lot of Iraqi interpreters that were trying to get out then. And so there was a significant failure of that DSIV program there to get them out. But that, that, was a, a well-executed withdrawal planned over a period of time. Um, in the fall of 2014, I covered the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Camp Leatherneck in Helmand Province in Afghanistan, the biggest base uh, in that part of the country. And again, an incredibly well-orchestrated withdrawal in a circumstance where there was significant fear that the Taliban were gonna be coming over the fences as the planes were, were taking off. So a high security threat, uh, but a planned executed withdrawal of getting thousands of people off that base, transitioning it over to the Afghan forces. So you know, things can be done when the resources and planning are, are, are put into it. Now, most people, argue that the speed with which the Taliban took over the country exceeded most estimates. And, and I, I think that's, that's fair. I, I think it, it was faster. I think people were planning for a linear pace to it, and it happened at an exponential pace, that with each place that the Taliban took over, momentum picked up, and Afghan forces in, in subsequent areas said, you know, let's, 
let's negotiate a deal. I don't, I don't want to fight this out. But wouldn't there have been a contingency where that happens? I mean, we know that there was that cable back in July that, Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, people on the ground are saying to the secretary of state, this could happen. So that, that contingency had to exist somewhere. Did the military miss it? Did they, did no one pay any attention to it? Or were they just too crowded out because they didn't have their, you know, what together? Yeah, and, and that, I, you know, I can't, I can't give you an authoritative answer other than to say I absolutely agree that that, that particular scenario was assessed by someone, and someone put that on the table saying, hey, absolute worst case is that the ANDSF melt away, the Taliban come marching in, and they're at the gates of Kabul while you're still trying to get out the door. Um, so that that had to be there and someone had to be considering what happens in that scenario if everything is converging on Kabul as as the withdrawal is, is happening. And so that's the question, either who missed it, who dismissed it, um, who decided, well, the risk of that happening is so low and the requirements to plan against that are so high that that you know we'll take that off the table I, you know i don't know I, it, it it's one of those things that you know you sort of look at it and figure well you know the next bob woodward book or something like that is uh, going to come out down the road with all the inside accounts but matt kind of back to what you were saying earlier you know how much of it is truly accurate and how much of it is the typical uh, blame game that that goes on and cya that that goes on in these scenarios so uh, you know, we may or may not ever get the answers. I think now the key questions are really forward-looking as much as backward-looking. You know, I'd, as much as I I'd want to pick apart the failures of the last 20 years and question whether or not anyone is ever going to be held accountable uh, for for decisions that, that were made, I, I have no hope of that. But going forward now, the questions are, okay, how do you continue this withdrawal? How does the United States get the people out safely, minimize the ongoing risk? Um, and what leverage does the United States and the international community continue to have over the Taliban to get them to hopefully put in place a government and a regime that's a few degrees less horrible than their previous go around? You know, that that's going to be the, the big part of it. Certainly, they've said a lot of nice things in their press conferences so far. But uh, and, and you know, no offense, Paul, what I would say, you know, treat the Taliban like an American politician. Ignore what they say. Watch what they do. And, you know, the, <laughs> that's it. That's it. You know, we, we have a lot of experience. All three of us have a lot of experience with that one. Um, most, mo- most of what I said was, it was all was ignored and, and, and well, well, it should have been. And I occasionally did some things that also were mostly ignored. So my, you know, my experience as a congressman is, uh, you know, is, is telling, you know, I, I, there are so many questions more, more clearly more questions than answers that, and, and not, not to, 
be humorous in any way, but it reminds me, it's like the difference between Newtonian physics and quantum mechanics. You know, in Newtonian physics, the apple falls from the trees and atoms have a very neat little uh, uh, orbit around, you know, the, the, around the nuclei. And then you get to quantum mechanics where it's all thrown in the air and it's all about probabilities. And, and, and you've got to deal with the uncertainty principle. And, the, you know, Americans like certainty. They like the Newtonian version and uh, everything in this situation and, and generally in these situations operates on the uncertainty pr pr uh, principle. But one question is this, look, you, you're, you are um, uh, an experienced journalist. You, you were the guy in Kabul for, for NPR for years. Um, what about the press coverage of this situation? Has the coverage been fair? Has it been biased? Has it been thorough? Has it been nuanced? Um, are, are, have we been suffering from journalistic amnesia? Uh, of some sort about what's really happened and what's really going on? Is it is it excessively colored? I mean, what's your take on how the the journalists are approaching what's what's happened, what's happening and what's happened? I, I would sort of say a little bit of all of the above. And it, it, it's hard to, to put it all in, in one one bucket because there's coverage that's happening from Kabul. You know, there are still journalists there uh, who have done brave and great work, uh, really pr painting the picture of what's happening on the ground. And I think, you know, that starting from that, that coverage has been essential. Um, and it's obviously it's been declining because they're leaving. Fewer and fewer, yeah, there are fewer and fewer people there. I mean, I've watched as, you know, as friends of mine uh, have been posting on social media saying, hey, I just, you know, flew out on on this flight from from Kabul. Um, you know, others still there. But I, I think the on the ground reporting, first and foremost, has been essential. Uh, it's it's kept the human focus on things for the U.S. personnel there for the Afghan people and, and what's happening. So I think that work has, has been essential, and I hope that people are able to continue safely reporting from there uh, as long as possible because that, you know, you need the source, right? I mean, that's, sure. that, that's, that's first and foremost. Then when you start getting out to the degrees of distance, whether it's, you know, print, TV, um, and then you start getting into the distinctions between reporting programs versus all the opinion and, and analysis and where everything then starts to get politicized. Um, you know, I, it, it's the usual mix of things. I, I, I think there's been some very good, accurate reporting that has provided fair context for, you know, the history of the 20 years um, and has been useful and informative and then you know at the other end there's plenty of stuff on on tv that is you know talking head panel discussions that are typical partisan uh back and forth over this and that and part of it is you know the usual trying one party trying to cover their tail and and make sure that they're not going to pay for it at the polls next time around so uh, you know, it's it's the usual panoply of stuff, and it just depends. As I always say, you know, and as as a former 
journalist and also then having worked on the inside and understanding how much information journalists don't have access to, um, I, you know, I say, you know, question everything, source check things, you know, make sure that you're paying attention to what your news source is, uh, whether it is reporting, whether it's analysis, you know, when you're reading an opinion piece, I always start at the bottom and look at the bio of the author and go, okay, what, what's their experience and, and where are they coming from? Or are they someone who has spent 20 years sitting in a Washington think tank and has maybe done two field trips to the place that they're writing about? Uh, or are they someone who spent years on the ground and actually was was in the the realm of, of doing policy work? So, you know, all these things are, are essential to be an educated consumer of, of news and information. But uh, with almost everything, I think it's it's all out there. As I said, you know, the, the information on the ground is is getting reported and it's getting out. And I think it is painting a, an accurate and important picture of what's happening on the ground. And then it's being taken from there and either cherry picked or aggregated in ways that then suits other, other agendas down the, uh, the information food chain. Right. So putting on your best analytical hat, both from your reporting experience and from your experience, as you say, on the inside, no crystal balls and no one would hold anyone to an accurate prediction of the future. And I won't ask you for one, but kind of the way intelligence analysts do this, we know there are different scenarios for where things may go in the future with Afghanistan. Perhaps there will be a stable Taliban led government. That's a more reformed version of what we saw 20 years ago. Perhaps ISIS K will continue to rise and Afghanistan will become a haven for terrorism and a narco state in the future. What do you think the most likely scenarios are? And do you have any sense of relative likelihood among them? I mean, just from, from my you know, consumption of, of information over the years and, and, you know, a lot of empirical data. Um, look, I, I, I think, the Taliban is more savvy today than it was. And they, they know that they need international legitimacy to varying degrees because they need money, right? You know, the international community has been funding 75% of the Afghan budget for, for years. And they're going to have a harder time raising money, supporting an economy. You know, they have, they have to govern. And it's a more complicated country than they governed back in the late 90s. There's technology, there's information, there are people who, who are less willing to go along. You know, there were some protests in the first week or so after the Taliban came to power. You do have this holdout faction in the Panjshir Valley uh, with the, you know, the first vice president claiming he is now the legitimate ruler of the country and vowing that they're gonna continue to fight. So. The, the Taliban has the much more complicated terrain to deal with. The hope is that that forces them to be a little bit more reasonable than they were in the past and grant some more rights and freedoms and be less draconian in the way they run things. 
there's you know obviously no guarantee one way or the other, but there are pressures in that direction. Um, you know, the international community has more visibility on them than 20 years ago. So people are going to make noise if they're doing bad things. But the key is really going to be the recognition and money. And at what point does Pakistan recognize whatever regime the Taliban stands up? I mean, that's the thing. You know, we, we still don't even know what the government is going to look like, who's going to have what positions. You do have former President Hamid Karzai, Abdullah Abdullah, who served as the chief executive under the Ghani government, some people that are trying to negotiate with the Taliban to put together a regime that's somewhere between the original Taliban regime and what the internationally stood up government of Afghanistan was. Um, so hopefully they're, they're a little better in, in that regard, uh, a little more inclusive, but when Pakistan, China, Iran, Russia, those are the big four in terms of when and how they recognize or don't recognize a Taliban government and what they will want in return for, for recognition. And there's some things where they all have common cause and common cause with the United States. None of them wants terrorism emanating from Afghanistan. So there's uniform pressure and desire that whatever the government of Afghanistan is, that it's keeping terrorism at, at bay. And so there will be some pressure, especially for, again, the regional countries that are on the front door of this. Um, so what pressure will they put on the regime? What conditionality will they have with recognition, with funding, with, with support? Um, those are the things, in terms of where I'm looking at things over the next month or two, those are things that once the withdrawal is done and once the U.S. has gotten out, everyone it can get out, then what does the new government look like? Who's in it? How does the international community respond? How are the neighbors responding? What pressures are they putting on it? Um, so those, those are the, the things and, and the range of where that could go. Is, it's, it's certainly significant. Um, you know, what happens if the Taliban doesn't play well, doesn't get access to money, and can't provide any services or support to the Afghan people? And do they start uprising? Um, so these are all the things back to the intelligence analysis. Yes, all, all of these things are being looked at and ranked highly likely, not so likely, high degree of confidence. But I mean, really, we're still so far in the front end of, of this next chapter that uh, it, it's, it's far too early to, to make any significant predictions. I think it's we're outlining potentials and then watching to see indicators of whether things are moving in one direction or another. Well, we're almost out of time. And, uh, you know, we could literally continue to explore this topic. There's so many things that I think our listeners that I think the American people want to get into. And part of what I hear you saying is we can look back we have limited answers looking backwards. We can look forward. We have even more limited answers looking forward. But thank you for trying to help us at least sort out the bits that we do know, uh, which are very complicated, a mixture of <laughs> tragic and difficult. And uh, we really just want to thank you for giving us all the context. So on behalf of former Congressman Paul Hodes, 
I'm Matt Robeson on WKXL for the Beyond Politics podcast. Thanks so much to Sean Car Carberry for walking us through all of this. 